Deborah's song about the incident is even more startling. Then her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Cicero. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Then, then this glory in the act, in the emotional poetry that comes actually almost certainly in the excitement of the immediate aftermath. At her feet he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. We're in Judges, chapter 4 and chapter 5. The study is called Get Over Yourself. This particular installment, Step Up to the Plate. Taking a look at the lives of two brave women as found in the book of Judges. Josh Moody is senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton. And I'm Todd Busteed. Thanks for joining us today. Josh, not only do we have a song that apparently celebrates violence, but added to that, the violence is committed by a woman. Yeah, when you read these violent uh, descriptions in the Bible, it can really uh, throw you. How how does that happen? And then then when you read about a song that, you you know, singing a praise song about violence, it's it's not the kind of thing you'd normally uh, have written by your worship pastor for the Sunday morning. Hmm. And then, and then it's, and then you, you know, you think, well, okay, maybe that's sort of a a sort of stereotypically masculine trait. Perhaps I can understand it. But then you find it's like, it's it's a song by a woman and you think, well, what is going on here? It doesn't fit within my traditional expectations, perhaps. Well, we, we've got to set it all in context, and that's what we're going to do in the message. Uh, but what we have to remember is that justice is real, and God is a God of wholeness, and judgment is real. And so there's a warning to us, and of course the uh, the message of the gospel is there is also safety and rescue. Um, but the warning needs to stand. And so uh, in these Old Testament passages of violence, we hear the warning of, of the just judge. Hmm. Excellent. If your worship pastor does come up with songs like this, it probably needs to go in front of the deacon board. <laughs> I'm thinking so. Our study of the next two superheroes continues now. Judges 4 and 5. Here's Josh. Well, good morning, friends. You turn with me to your Bibles. We're looking at Judges 4 and 5 uh, together because it's the story of Deborah. There's another woman here too, isn't there? And this one, if anything, is more difficult still. And I still wonder whether I'd like to avoid preaching on this passage. And that's 2JL. And the controversy might be summarized as violence pleads. It's very difficult, isn't it? But as we crack open this oyster, we'll find that the pearl inside is really a solution to violence. Now, you'll find the story uh, uh, described first at the end of chapter 4, from verse 18 on, if you want to look down there. And you see, don't you, that Sisera goes to find sanctuary in the tent of a friend, and the friend's wife welcomes him and gives him something to drink, and then when he's safely asleep, deliberately kills him. Uh, The implement she uses is so unusual, the hammer and tent peg, that it seems intentionally symbolic. A couple of different possibilities here. It it could be because actually this hammer and and tent peg was particularly feminine. The the Bedouin today, uh, putting up tents, is actually woman's work. And so it could be particularly feminine. The tent peg and hammer were perhaps familiar to her, like like someone in in the 1950s might use a kitchen knife or a rolling pin or something like that. It could be symbolic in that sense. Jael picks up her rolling pin, you know. Or, as a woman, she was using the workman's tool, very emphatically. That's possible, too, either way. And, of course, uh, um, Cicero himself doesn't appear to be much of a 
a guy who stepped up to the plate. He says to her, you know, if anyone asks, uh, verse 20 of chapter 4, is there anyone here? Say no. Well, literally, if anyone asks, is there any man here? Say no. No man. No, he's hiding behind her skirts. Well, either way, it's a sort of grim caricature, isn't it? And the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy that the honor of killing Sisera would go to a woman, and that woman being Jael. Well, Deborah's song about the incident is even more startling. Uh, verse 24 of chapter 5. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women, perhaps the, the feminine location again emphasized, the home, the hearth. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for noble, she brought him curdled milk. So she has performed all that's required of a, of a good host. But then a hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer, or hammer of a worker, depending on how you understand that. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Then, then this glory in the act, in the emotional poetry that comes Actually, almost certainly in the excitement of the immediate aftermath, when this poem was originally composed, we're to imagine them all gathered together around campfires, and they're singing a song, and there's a kind of rhythm to it, isn't there, that you can almost hear them chanting together, at her feet he fell, there he lay, at her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. You, know? you see, if Deborah is a sort of helpmeet for Barak, who has to hold his hand to get him to do what God wanted him to do anyway... Jael is a kind of Amazon warrior, isn't she? And of course the question is, how on earth can the Bible say, most blessed of women be Jael? I think it would be hard to underestimate the importance of answering that question for Christians today. Many people these days feel that Christianity, in its orthodox form, is not only intellectually disproved, but positively morally dangerous. They look at the fundamentalist extremist Muslims who hijack those planes and uh, who blow themselves up in hope of paradise to come. And they see not much difference between that and those who urge the importance of the fundamentals of other religious faiths. We are all tarred with the same brush. And uh, they say if there must be religion in the world, it is uh, for them, let it be of the mild, moderate kind that stirs no great passions. Uh, but the reality is, the strange reality for such folk who feel like this, is that in today's world, religious feeling and faith is massively on the increase. There's no denying it. Like it or not, the old idea that uh, human beings could exist happily enough believing that we are merely material, physical uh, elements uh, has led to much disillusionment and a, and a turning to God by by the million around the world. The church is growing at a phenomenal rate, particularly in the southern hemisphere of the globe, South America, sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Asia. It's growing at a phenomenal rate. And always, always, the growth is of a passionate, biblical, evangelical kind. Always. Now, I'm going to try and address this for us. Uh, but as with Deborah, the Amazon... Princess Jael does not in this section answer all the questions to do with the matter of violence and religion, but it does point to the right way of looking at the issue. And from there, the answer and the pearl, the solution to violence, is far easier to find, far easier to find. Now, what we need to notice carefully is verse 31. 
So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. See, part of the problem is people feel that God plays favorites. But God is just. His justice is perfectly fair. And the reality is that we believe he is a good and fearsome God. And that therefore all God's enemies will perish alike. It's not only the Canaanites who receive God's judgment. The Israelites did too, as the book of Judges records time and time again. All his enemies, you see. What's more, it is his enemies, not ours. Of course, this opens up the other key in general to understanding all these violent passages in the Old Testament. And it's a basic truth of a sound biblical theology. And if you want to be able to answer this question, you need to understand it. So take your brain out of the fridge and get it in the oven and work with me, okay? See if you can figure it out. In the Old Testament, God's people were a theocracy. In other words, that is, they were a nation state where God's people had the power of the sword and needed to act in justice in reflection of God's judgment in this world, a theocracy in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God's people are the city of God running in parallel to the secular city, the secular society. And we now are a people of all nations, not a nation state. And we are called upon, the Bible tells us, to submit to the secular authorities. Who? They bear the sword, not us. In exercise of God's judgment of wrongdoers. You see, the great mistake is to say that the God of the Old Testament is angry and the God of the New Testament is loving. No, no, no. In the Old Testament, God is described in his great revelation of his character to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's not in the New Testament, on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament, that's Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Now, of course, it carries on, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. But whereas in the Old Testament that punishment of guilt was carried out in part by the theocracy of the nation-state of Israel, in the New Testament that punishment, while expressed now in the consequences that sin does have in our lives, is proclaimed to be more fully and finally found on the last day. So any who doubt that God is loving in the Old Testament, just simply haven't read enough of the Old Testament to know, to read the Psalms and Exodus and elsewhere. He's very loving in the Old Testament. And any who doubt that God will judge in the New Testament just simply haven't read enough of it to know or, or, or read enough of Jesus who warns of hell far more than any other biblical figure, as he says, where the fire will not be quenched. Or even the book of Revelation, where it says, the angel swung his sickle on the earth gather its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Revelation 14, 19 to 20. 
1,600 stadia is about 183 modern miles, and that's a lot. That's a lot of tent pegs and hammers. We'll continue our look at vengeance in just a second, but first a quick reminder that you're listening to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. We're in the midst of a study in the book of Judges, and earlier installments in that study are available. Simply go to our website, GodCenteredLife.org. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a few moments. Right now, though, let's get back to our study. Here's Josh. I'm having a conversation with a guy who's really struggling with this idea of morality and, and talking about the um, Virginia Tech shooting that had happened very recently. And he was saying to me, there is no absolute morals. There is no judgment. There's nothing of that sort. And I referred to this instance, and I said to him as we were having our conversation, what would you have done if you had met the, the man who did the Virginia Tech shooting beforehand and you knew for sure that he was about to do this? Would you have interfered or would you have let him go his way? Would you have tackled him to the ground and restrained him, even if aggressively? Or would you have said, it doesn't matter, there is no moral absolute? And he said, without pausing, I would have stopped him. And so there is a need for justice in this world. But it is God's justice that's needed, not mine or yours. We are to live at peace with all men. We are to love our enemies, Jesus says. We are to pray for those who persecute us, Jesus says. But of course the reality is, that's tough. How on earth do you do it? How do you love the guy who's wrecked your career? How do you pray for the person who's who's victimizing you to destroy you? How do you do that? Here's the answer. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Romans 12, 18 to 20. If it, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, this is JL's friend. This was not JL's enemy at all. Disturbingly, it was JL's friend. But in the theocracy, in the nation state of the church at the time, before Christ appeared to take the gospel through its disciples to all nations, this was actually God's enemy. May all your enemies perish like this, O Lord. And you may say, why on earth does God get to take vengeance when we don't? Well, the reason for that, of course, is in our sense of vengeance, God does not. He gets to do justice. And we don't do that. He is the moral guardian of the universe, whereas we get our nose put out of joint by the least offense. And of course, if we end up judging people in that kind of way, we are only expressing the kind of judgment that we ourselves will receive as people who are moral failures, you and I alike. Do not judge, Jesus says. So much of the practical side of Christianity comes down to fearing God, you know. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. And many of us, friends, have no fear of God before our eyes at all. We study God. I love it when someone asks you what you're studying and someone says theology, and you think, I'm studying God to see if he'll fit into our categories. Sometimes. Not always, of course. Sometimes. We do church. Make it like we like 
fear God? How quaint, how old-fashioned, how positively 1950s. The Puritans did not invent the fear and judgment of God. They just read their Bibles and there it was. Just as Deborah was forced to the front by the wimpishness of the men around her, so Jael was forced to take justice into her own hands by the same lack of proper authority. Yet behind it all stands the God who brings good out of their situation, who uses a barrack despite his small faith, and brings to justice those who deserved it, even if through very unlikely means. You know, sometimes people come up to us and they think, you know, they get wary about our passion for God. It's like how we can say it's not how much we believe, it is what we believe. You ever thought about that? It's like a, it doesn't matter how little someone believes that the earth is flat, it's still wrong, even if they only believe it a little bit. Or how much someone believes we should love each other, that's still a good thing, even if they believe it really, really passionately. And so we believe with all our hearts and every tenor of our being that God is love and that he weeps over sinners like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. That none of us are able to be good enough for him, whether Sisera or Barak. And only by God's grace in Christ can any of us find salvation from the wrath that is to come. If you're sitting here, and I think it's going to be helpful for you. If you're sitting here and you're someone who gets worried about all those, you know, fundamentalists, whoever they may be, right? Ask yourself, not how excited about God are they, but what kind of God do they believe in? Because if they believe in the kind of God who will not judge, it may be that they will be tempted to take the judgment into their own hands. Whereas we leave judgment to God who knows all hearts and we do not. And exercise tender mercy ourselves. Knowing that we are just sinners needing salvation too. Now I know it is a tough word. Brother, sister, learn to tremble before God. We have lost that in our generation. And that is why we're wimpish. Be humble. Be who you are meant to be. Man, be a Christian leader. Be a man. Be a godly man. It's for this very time that you are here. God has you here for a purpose. The opportunity to serve is upon you. Woman, pray, encourage. Be all that God wants you to be. Be encouraged that God uses women for great things. An Esther, a Ruth, a Deborah. Be a godly woman. Do not gossip. Do not harbor grudges. Do not spread lies. Do not undermine the men around you with their fragile male egos. You know? But encourage them. Point them in the right direction like Deborah if need be. And be celebrated as she was and is as a mother in Israel. A woman of God. Non-Christian. Do not think you can be good enough for God. He is holy. There is none that can escape the coming wrath. Violence. I have a solution for violence for you. He was beaten. 
Nails were driven not through his temple, but through his hands. He didn't say a word. He could have done, but he did not. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before the shearers, he was silent. He bled and died as a solution for violence. He bled and died for your violent heart. The cross does not legitimate violence. It overcomes it. We fail to live up even to our own standards, let alone God's. We nurse, don't we? We nurse the petty jealousies. We argue and spit to get ahead and play politics to climb the greasy pole. We give way to our baser instincts. And all that we must not be, however smoothly covered up with a shiny veneer of respectability, inside, you know what you are, I know what I am. And what we would be if we could get away with it. And there he is. Can you see him? Crying that you might not. Weeping that you might dance. Taking all your sin and giving you his righteousness like a cosmically strong magnet attracting all the violence of the universe, becoming a black hole that now risen to life, a black hole sucking in all the risen to new lives of life that, that we might have the free gift of salvation and receive it with the empty hands of a childlike faith receiving a present on Christmas morning. And so verse 31 this is the son who will rise with strength to heal. The son of righteousness risen with healing in its wings. Malachi 4 verse 2. The tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Luke 1 78 to 79 as Zechariah later sings. This is the son of God the Messiah, the Christ, the crucified one, sacrifice for all the suffering of the world. And you need to bow the knee before him that you might be saved from the wrath that is to come. For as sure as morning follows night, the day is coming. And you need to make sure that on that day, that great and glorious day, the sun does not blind you in judgment, but shines on you in warm mercy. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. So, Josh, it seems like a vital, important lens through which to see this passage and perhaps other stories of violence in the Bible, and that is that it is God's judgment. Mm -hmm. Indeed, yeah. We are not the judges. He is. And in, in the Old Testament, he uses his people as a tool of uh, his judgment. And uh, in the storyline of the Bible, that judgment finally uh, lands in the return of Christ and the, the very day of judgment. But it's a word of, obviously, challenge and also a word of encouragement because for those who are on the wrong end of injustice, to know that there is a just judge uh, makes us stand up tall 
and encourage us that the truth will come out. Another quote from that session popped, If someone doesn't believe in a just God, we should be concerned that they may take matters into their own hands. Mm -hmm. We're certainly seeing that play out these days, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And I, I think where because the message of God's judgment has not been preached, and who wants to preach a message like that? Mm. Uh, but because that has not been preached, people live as if uh, they're gods in their own eyes. All must stand before the judge that should bring humility and righteousness to us all. Excellent. Thank you for that, Josh. Just enough time to remind you that God-Centered Life is where we're putting together resources that we'd love for you to take advantage of. GodCenteredLife.org, our website. Next time we get together, is that fair? He's saying that we cannot escape to the idea that God is using suffering to justly punish those who deserve it. For in point of fact... Some rather wicked people seem to completely get away with it in this world, and some pretty nice people seem to have a terrible time. Continuing our study in the book of Judges, when we get together next time, GodCenteredLife.org, resources for your devotional growth, and this is your invitation to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. Josh Moody.